History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hello, everyone. This is not episode 51, and we are not talking about the Battle of Salome, partially because I'm just full of surprises, and mostly because there are scheduling conflicts. Today, I have a special edition of the History of Persia podcast for you, an interview with Uzume Wijinsma, PhD candidate at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands. Azume works on Leiden's research project called Persia and Babylonia, creating a new context for understanding the emergence of the First World Empire, and focuses on the Egyptian and Babylonian rebellions against the Achaemenids, which have come up frequently on this podcast. Most recently, in episode 46, the Persian Emperor, when both provinces defied Xerxes at the outset of his reign. Leiden is, as I said, in the Netherlands, so please enjoy this conversation at the very beginning of my day and at the end of hers. All right, it's always good to start these things at the beginning. So could you tell us a bit about how you arrived at your research interests, both in the Achaemenid period more generally and specifically in Egypt and Babylon? Uh, sure. So, um, well, currently uh, I'm a PhD candidate at Leiden University with a focus on the rebellions in Egypt and also um, comparing that to rebellions in Babylonia uh, against uh, the Persians. And I think my interest in the Persian Empire in general and the Persian period probably started about seven years ago when I was uh, studying for my bachelor. Um, and at the time I was doing this rather broad study on the societies of uh, ancient Western Asia and the Mediterranean world. So everything from Egypt to Israel and Iraq and Iran and Turkey and Greece. Um, and I loved that because I didn't you know, have to choose only one country or only one region to focus on. And during those studies, you know, eventually, uh, inevitably, I came across the Persian Empire. And I think the Persian Empire was immediately sort of a perfect fit. I mean, the empire was so vast, of course, uh, the first world empire in history, it has been called, 
that it united all of these different regions uh, for the first time under one state. And that also means that once you start studying the Persian Empire, um, you have to take into account this immense diversity of sources. So for example, when you study the Egyptian rebellions, um, you also have to look at the Greco-Roman narrative texts, and you also have to look at Babylonian cuneiform tablets. Um, and I think that diversity is still one of the things that I love most about what I do now. And the fact that I uh, started studying rebellion specifically um, is just something that grew out of a very general interest that I always have in um, resistance against the government, <laughs> uh, both uh, small scale and large scale. Uh, so I also love reading about, you know, the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution of the modern era uh, or other uh, movements of resistance in the contemporary world. But that also translates to my interest in, in ancient history and uh, the rebellions that were waged at that time against people who were in power in, at that time. So in short, that is basically how I came uh, to the, the research project that I'm currently conducting. Excellent, excellent. I think you're certainly not alone in being captured by the diversity of options and sources in the Achaemenid period. That's certainly one of the things that captures my interest in them as well. Um, it, now, it might be an unconventional place to go into for a popular interview, but I like to think my listeners are familiar with the issues surrounding some of the sources for the Achaemenid period. One thing that comes up repeatedly in your work, or at least your published work, is the complex issue of dating the events that you research. Understandably, it's hard to identify when people stop recognizing a Persian king in a system where documents are dated by the recognized king. Uh, and at least as I understand it, this is a fairly similar problem between Babylonia and Egypt. So could you tell us a bit about how these issues are resolved and why the exact date is so important for understanding some of these events? Uh, right. Well, yes, uh, issues of dating are um, extremely frustrating, uh, but also very important. Um, and uh, why is it important? Well, for example, if you want to know how different political events in the Persian Empire uh, may have affected one another, uh, you need to know when exactly uh, that actually occurred. So for example, um, when you look at an Egyptian rebellion, uh, ideally you would want to know in what exact year uh, or even which weeks uh, that rebellion uh, was fought, when it began, when it ended. So you might possibly relate that to other rebellions in the empire, other military expeditions that the Persians waged so you can interrelate those different uh, events. But as you said, yes, uh, for many of the rebellions, um, the issue of chronology is, is difficult. Um, and that is because, well, it sort of depends uh, at which rebellion you look. Um, sometimes uh, we have a very nice Greek narrative uh, on a certain rebellion. Uh, for example, uh, Herodotus, who may tell us something about that Egypt rebelled in the last year of Darius' reign uh, and that it ended in the first year of Xerxes' reign, but then you have a very specific uh, chronological time span to work with. But with other rebellions, such as uh, rebellions in Babylonia uh, against Xerxes' early reign, uh, we do not have very specific uh, narratives on that. So we have to rely on the documents from those regions. Uh, and these are, for example, contracts, um, administrative documents that are dated to the king who was recognized at the time. Um, and as you said, you know, most of them are dated to Persian kings. So we have a lot of documents dated to Darius and to Xerxes and to uh, all the other kings of the Achaemenid Empire. But when we have tablets dated to uh, a king who is not otherwise known, um, and one who has, for example, a Babylonian name, then you know that we might be dealing with a rebel king here. Now, and how do you date that without an external narrative on the rebellion? 
One very important element in that is cosmography, so the, the study of persons and uh, their relationships to one another. So for example, when you have a tablet dated to year one or uh, the accession year of a Babylonian rebel king, um, and the tablet mentions different people uh, involved in the transaction, and we know these people from other tablets dated to, for example, the last years of the reign of Darius and the first years of Xerxes, uh, then you get this uh, you know, chronological time span from the tablets itself, which allows you to at least roughly date uh, the rebellion. So that is one way uh, of approaching it. Um, but of course, it depends on which rebellion you look at specifically. That was just as one thing, especially that came up when I was discussing pretty recently in the podcast narrative about uh, the rebellions at the outset of Xerxes' reign was the very complex issue of dating those two revolts in particular, given that you wrote uh, significantly about it. I wanted to get your input on that. Uh, so most of your published work uh, focuses on Egypt, so I'd like to start getting a little bit more specific there. What is it with Egypt that made them so uniquely capable of rebellion? Yeah. Uh, outside of the Greeks intervening in Western Anatolia, Egypt seems to be the most rebellious province of the Achaemenid Empire. Yeah, that is definitely true. Um, the rebellions in Egypt are extremely well known, uh, especially because they were so frequent. Uh, so depending on how you count and, and which episodes you consider a rebellion or not, we have uh, about five or six of them in the period of the Achaemenid Empire. And um, they were also partly successful. So we have a lot of rebellions that, of course, were put down by the Persian kings, even if it took several years. But we also have a rebellion about 400 BC, which was successful and which regained Egypt its independence from the Persian Empire for several decades um, at a time when you know, large parts of ancient uh, Western Asia were still under Persian rule. And why was Egypt so prone to rebellion? Uh, that is one of the most difficult questions to actually get a good answer uh, on. Uh, it is also one of the questions that, of course, preoccupies me and my work. Um, what were the causes of these rebellions? Uh, why were they waged in the first place? You know, was there something specific about Persian rule in Egypt that made Egyptians want to resist it so badly that they were willing to risk their lives for it, to, to wage armed rebellions? Um, and I think where you have to start if you're trying to answer a question like that is first, really get into who were the people that rebelled. Um, because a lot of time we're talking about, you know, Egypt rebelled or the Egyptians rebelled, but it's not necessarily the entire population uh, that was in revolt. And there may have been specific layers of society that were more prone to resist Persian rule uh, than others were. But to identify these groups of people, um, is extremely difficult. And sometimes we get hints in our sources uh, of who these people were. Uh, for example, in the mid fifth century BC, there was a really large rebellion for several years. Um, and we know about this rebellion quite well, quite a lot, because the Greeks were also involved in it. So we have Athens uh, at one point, sending in troops to Egypt uh, to support Egyptian rebels in their fight against the Persians. And because of this Greek involvement, um, we also have a lot of Greek authors who write narratives about what happened in that period. And what we can gather from those sources is, for example, that in this case, um, the, the, the person who led the rebellion was not an Egyptian, but a Libyan man called Inavos. And um, apparently he was already some type of king or ruler before he began that rebellion. So he was this high placed person somewhere in northern uh, Egypt or at the border with Libya. And that is just one clue we have of who led the rebellion. Uh, but in terms of who supported it, you know, were these peasants who supported it? Were these mass revolts or was it just a matter of a few high placed Egyptians and Libyans? Um, that is often uh, very difficult to identify. Uh, 
So yes, I would say one of the questions that, that occupies people who study Persian Egypt is still why word of dying so frequent. And um, a satisfying answer to it uh, is, you know, still not really uh, found because the sources we have in Egypt are just sadly uh, not sufficient to answer questions like that. But I, I must add one thing that, um, and here it's interesting to compare Egypt with Babylonia. Uh, Babylonia, of course, rebelled multiple times as well against the Persians, and sometimes almost at the same time as, uh, as some Egyptians did. But what we can see is in Babylonia is that whatever the Persians did there to uh, sort of punish the rebellions or to restructure Babylonia in order to prevent further resistance seems to have been effective. So after Xerxes' reign, uh, there's no secure evidence anymore for another Babylonian rebellion. Whereas whatever the Persians did in Egypt appears to have been ineffective. Um, and you know, one of the most simple reasons for that may basically be that Egypt was this outlying peripheral province of the empire. The empire was huge, of course, and we're dealing here uh, with a country in, in North Africa uh, at the very borders of the Persian realm, which was also very well connected to the Mediterranean uh, and therefore benefited at times from outside assistance, in particular from Greek states. Uh, and that may have made it, you know, more uh, prone to resistance and successful resistance than an inline province uh, such as Babylonia. Great, and that actually uh, touches a little bit on some of the other questions I had and rolls a couple of them out. As you said, the evidence for a lot of these things, especially the exact people involved beyond some theoretical pharaohs is somewhat scant. Um, is there any evidence for what kind of consequences Egypt faced? I know there are lots of discussions and theories about Babylon being divided into multiple provinces and you know, evidence of ar archives associated with pre-existing established nobility. Do we see similar consequences in Egypt or is the evidence really just too scant to say much about consequences? Um, a little bit of both. I think um, it's, I mean, Babylonia is, of course, a wonderful province because we have so many uh, cuneiform tablets from uh, the region itself, thousands of them, which allow us to uh, write quite detailed micro histories of the Persian Empire in that region. Um, it is unique in that regard in the Persian Empire. And although Egypt uh, has also hundreds of sources from this period, uh, it's not comparable in, in size. So necessarily we have more gaps in our knowledge of Persian Egypt than in Persian Babylonia. Um, but when you look at the two, there are some interesting uh, comparisons. So for example, in uh, Babylonia, when the rebellions against Xerxes' early reign uh, were waged, there's a definite break in uh, several archives there. Uh, where we can see that a lot of archives from uh, one specific segment in Babylonian society ended in 484 BC, year two of Xerxes. And that end of archives, uh, as it has been called, uh, also inspired me to look for parallels uh, in Egypt in this regard. And um, well, on a much smaller scale, you can see that in Egypt as well. So for example, when uh, rebellions against uh, at the end of Darius' reign and the beginning of Xerxes were fought in Egypt, we can also see that we have this tiny handful of archives in Egypt that break off at the very end of Darius' reign uh, and that do not resume, you know, they just end there. Um, and these are mostly archives that are extremely uh, Egyptian in outlook. So we're dealing with uh, Egyptian families and businesses, very local. Uh, whereas the archives and the sources that uh, are more specifically connected to Persians in Egypt, Persian families, Persian officials, Egyptians working for Persians, uh, we can see that their sources continue. Um, and what does that tell us? Well, it's very difficult, uh, of course, to, to know why a certain archive ends. 
but it suggests that there was some sort of impact on these families um, while others remained unaffected. And this may have been, for example, because they were put out of their office or because they were killed even, or because they had to flee the troubles, um, etc. So you can very generally compare the two. But in a more general way, when we're talking about consequences in Egypt, so what did the Persians do to um, punish Egyptian rebellions or to prevent further resistance? I would say that, um, well, one thing that seems to have happened is that the traditional Egyptian elite um, had less and less power from about Darius' reign onwards. And that is not an uncontested issue, uh, but I think that uh, that is definitely visible in the sources. And why do I think that? Um, well, the traditional Egyptian elite uh, is mostly, uh, we mostly know them from, for example, monumental tombs in Egypt and from statues that they set up of themselves in the temples with uh, texts about their lives and their careers. Um, we know them from the seals they had, which bear their names, um, etc. And for the period preceding the Persian Empire, so for the Zedite uh, dynasty, uh, the 7th to 6th centuries BC, we have hundreds of these sources. You know, we have a lot of Egyptian statues, we have a, a quite some monumental tombs, uh, so we can, to some extent, trace uh, the relationships of the uh, Egyptian elite at this time. Whereas somewhere in the early Persian period, uh, most specifically um, in Darius' reign and very visibly from Xerxes' reign onwards, most of these sources just disappear. We, we barely have any statues and uh, monumental tombs um, that can be confidently dated to Persian kings from Xerxes onwards. And there is a lot of discussion going on to what extent this actually is the case. So some Egyptologists, for example, have argued that uh, we may have been uh, misdating certain statues, that statues that should be dated to Persian period Egypt have mistakenly be dated to later or earlier periods. Um, but in the absence of statues and monumental tombs, which specifically refer to Persian kings, um, I think the, the observation still stands. Uh, whatever happened, there was a definite reduction of the means by which the traditional Egyptian elite expressed themselves, uh, as we expect them to do from the 7th and 6th centuries BC. Um, and a similar reduction is also seen in the realm of uh, temple institutions. So whereas kings of the Sa'i dynasty uh, are known from all kinds of inscriptions on temple blocks and in sanctuaries uh, where they portray themselves as pious pharaohs, you know, offering to the gods. We have a little bit of that under Cambyses and Darius, but, you know, almost zero from Xerxes right onwards. So again, we have this reduction um, of Egyptian sources that, that normally uh, are our main sources for, for study of Egyptian society. So again, although that it's difficult to translate that to what exactly happened there, you know, what happened to the Egyptian elite then? Did they disappear or did they just, you know, lose their means of expressing themselves in the way that we expect them to do? Um, you can see uh, uh, a certain change in the Persian period. And that is a change that's roughly comparable to what is visible in Persian Babylonia. Do you think it would be fair to say that these possible consequences are a large factor in why we have so few documented sources for the events we're talking about? Um, yes, possibly. I mean, you're, you're never sure, right? Because we cannot change, or because we cannot date the change and the reduction uh, to a very, to an absolute time period. Um, it's difficult to say whether they were consequences or causes of resistance. Uh, you might also argue that from Darius' reign onwards, there was a policy that reduced uh, the power of the traditional Egyptian elite, which is visible in, in the reduction of sources. 
and that that change in policy may have fueled uh, the resistance that came afterwards. Um, so, you know, the chicken or the ax story, we're, we're not sure which is which. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors. And Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Maybe shifting focus a little bit eastward now, uh, your research also focuses in on Babylonia, and you are part of Leyden's Persia and Babylonia project. Could you tell us a bit more about that research project in general and the online presence and blog associated with it? Right, so the Persian Babylonia project is a, is a larger project at Leiden University led by uh, Professor Dr. Kavalin Marzegers. And um, as the title suggests, it is mainly focused on the province of Babylonia within the Persian Empire. Um, so I also have you know, uh, colleagues who are fellow PhD candidates and a postdoctoral researcher who are all working specifically on that province. Um, and as I said, Babylonia is quite a unique uh, region within the Persian Empire because it has so many uh, sources still preserved. So um, it allows us to, you know, sort of write a micro history of empire in far more detail than historians might be able to do for other regions in the Persian empire. Um, so you have to think of, we have Babylonian archives uh, of all kinds of different families and all kinds of different cities of that region. Uh, some of these archives are huge. You know, we have temple archives of about 30,000 tablets. Uh, we have family archives of 200 tablets. So that allows you to trace the lives of specific groups in society over several generations sometimes and to really see how um, the arrival of Persian armies impacted their lives. Um, and uh, one part is the, the project, and this project began in 2017, so it runs for about five years, so it, uh, it's in its final stages in this year. One uh, important part of the project is also um, a database that is uh, set up, which is called Prosobop, uh, an abbreviation of Prosopography of Babylonia. And this is a large online database which anyone can consult, um, which collects all kinds of data on these people within these Babylonian archives. 
um, and how they related to one another and what kind of tablets they appeared, um, what kind of real estate they owned, for example, uh, how rich they were or not, what was their position in society. So it's um, it's really meant as a research tool for, for us, uh, of course, in the project, but also for a wider academic community to be able to study Persian Babylonian in even more uh, detail and depth. And you said that was called Prosobop? Prosobop, yeah. So uh, short for Prosopography of Babylonia. Understood. So is it just an issue of sources, uh, just having so many sources from Babylon that makes it feel like Babylonian Persia were uniquely linked? Or is there more to it? Were there other reasons for so many direct connections between the Persian nobility and Babylonia in particular? Or is this something we would see in other places if we had the sources? Oh, yeah, that's always difficult to answer. I mean, what would we know about the Persians if we have more sources? Uh, it's always dangerous uh, to say that uh, as long as we do not have those sources. But of course, Babylonia was, um, well, uh, right in the middle of the Persian Empire, one could say. So, it's, you know, it's relatively close uh, to Iran and to the heartland uh, of the Persians, um, southwestern Iran. And um, we have uh, tablets, for example, that show that uh, groups of Babylonians were sometimes, uh, well, either voluntarily or forced to, to travel to imperial cities um, for of the Persian Empire. So there were a lot of groups going to Susa. And Persian sources also show us that Babylonians went all the way to, to Persepolis in that region. Um, so it seems that, you know, there was a very basic geographical connection between the two that allowed closer connections between Persians and Babylonians than would be possible, uh, for example, for Persians and, and Egyptians or people living in Western Turkey. Um, and on top of that, there's also this, um, well, more ideological connection. So, of course, the Persians really built on uh, ideologies of kingship, for example, in the region of Iraq. Uh, before the Persian Empire, there was this uh, large new Babylonian Empire in the region. Before that, even the new Assyrian Empire. Um, and the Persians um, obviously used uh, certain elements of kingship that are visible uh, in Babylonia and Assyria in their own presentation to the world. And it's telling, for example, that Babylonian, that Babylonian language was also used as one of the imperial languages of the Persians. So when you look at Persian royal inscriptions in uh, Iran, for example, then you can see that a lot of them are written in three languages, one of which is Old Persian, the other is Elamite, which is uh, traditionally linked to that region in Iran, and the other is Babylonian. Uh, so it seems that you know the Persians also wittingly incorporated uh, aspects of Babylonia into their own society and their own court style. Even though there are these, as you say, thousands and thousands of tablets from the Achaemenid period in Mesopotamia, it seems like the revolts in your research especially the two documented at Behistun, are very poorly attested, at least in the case of the two under Xerxes, the, uh, the archives are kind of the primary way of engaging with it. So it, why is it that even through gaps in the archives, it seems like there aren't, uh, there is not a lot of evidence for those revolts? Yeah, I would say they're not specifically uh, less documented than, than other rebellions. Um, uh, actually, one of the things that is nice about the Byzantine crisis is that um, the archives from Babylonia sort of cover the period in its entirety and continue after uh, Darius actually confidently claimed the throne. Um, so we have archives that stretch the period of the Byzantine crisis, whereas with the rebellions against Xerxes, the archives uh, stop at a certain point. And that, you know, does not allow us to see um, 
what what happened to these people after that specific period. Um, but in the BCM crisis, yeah, there are several archives which um, which show that these uh, Babylonian rebels who claimed the, the old throne name Nebuchadnezzar for themselves, that they were recognized in, in different parts of Babylonia. And we also have sufficient uh, tablets uh, for both of these movements that um, we can say that the Bizitun inscription is actually quite accurate in its chronology. So for the Babylonian rebellions in, in 520 and 21 BC, the Bizitun inscription of Darius gives quite specific dates for when it happened um, and also when they were defeated. So sometimes we hear that Darius uh, waged battles against Babylonians uh, in December of 522 BC. Um, and that's you know, afterwards he claimed the kingship. And in Babylonian tablets, we can see similar patterns going on. So for a few months, uh, a, a person called Nebuchadnezzar was recognized. And then somewhere in December, uh, Darius was recognized again. But this period was uh, perhaps a bit bit more chaotic than, than later rebellions, because you sometimes also see that one city recognized uh, a Babylonian rebel king, and then in, in the month thereafter, they recognized Darius, and then in the month thereafter, they switched back again to Nebuchadnezzar. So it's quite chaotic, but uh, also one of the things why why that period is quite interesting. I had not heard the switching back and forth in the archives before. That's uh, both amusing and really interesting. Uh, unlike Egypt, Babylon seems to have just given up its attempts at independence after Xerxes. Um, obviously, Egypt saw its greatest successes in the next couple of generations after that. Uh, what was different in the documentary history of Babylon? Can we see any evidence for why they seem to have given up, or at least on the surface? Well, you know, to speak of give up uh, also sort of implies that they would still want to resist. And that is, of course, one of the questions. Um, should we just assume that everyone wanted independence from the Persians? I mean, by the time of um, Xerxes, Babylonia had been part of the Persian Empire for, what is it, almost 50 years, more than that. Um, and, you know, when these rebellions against Xerxes' reign were defeated, um, there, there's evidence for that some people, some layers of society sort of disappear from view or uh, that some um, some officials were, uh, how do you say that, replaced by other groups in society. Um, and of course, you have to take that into account as well. So when we suddenly have all kinds of other groups of Babylonians that sort of benefited from these rebellions because suddenly they get the high posts um, that their predecessors uh, have lost because of their involvement in, in resistance. Um, they might not want to resist the Persians uh, as much as their predecessors did because to a large extent, well, they benefited from Persian rule. And um, yeah, that is one of the things you have to take into account that you can't you know, continuously assume that everyone hated uh, the Persians so much that we would expect rebellions to occur. And I think that is actually one of the problems we have in Egypt, that we have to ask ourselves, why did they continuously uh, keep resisting um, while we might assume that, that uh, similar things happened in Egypt, that people who had resisted were somehow, you know, gotten rid of and replaced by others, but these others apparently also wanted to resist Persian rule. Um, so it's it's more a problem of interpretation in Egypt, I would say, than, than a problem in Babylonia. And I think this is something we've touched on quite a bit already, um, but I'd love to hear if you have more to say on the issue. Uh, in basically every case of rebellion we've talked about today, we at least have an idea of the king or pharaoh who was you know, at least the figurehead for whatever movement it was. But who were the people supporting those rebellions? Was it pre-existing nobility, which is what I think you've implied so far? 
uh, popular support or some other element entirely? Yeah, well, uh, of course, in, in some cases, we have evidence that, that it was a traditional elite that supported these rebellions. Um, but that is also because most of our sources come from the higher uh, layers of society. And when you talk about, you know, people that were uh, extremely poor, uh, who almost had nothing, uh, and I think, I mean, that is the larger uh, percentage of the population in the ancient Near East and Egypt that we're talking about, most of the time we, we do not have their sources. You know, they didn't leave us uh, great inscribed tombs and statues and um, business archives and whatnot. For the most part, they are invisible to us, which also means that their possible involvement in uh, revolts uh, of this type are, is invisible to us. And I think um, well, a telling example in this, is, in this case is actually in the Roman period, uh, there's this one rebellion, um, which is known from Roman narrative texts. And from those narratives, we know that this was a slave rebellion, that it was almost completely uh, begun by people who were enslaved to uh, rich Romans, uh, and you began a huge uh, resistance against that. But in terms of contemporary epigraphic sources, all we have are you know, some coins uh, with the throne name uh, of its leader. And if we only had those coins, we would never have known the involvement of all of those people who had once been enslaved. And I think that is one of the things we also have to take into account for the Egyptian and Babylonian rebellions against the Persians, um, that there may have been a very large segment of society involved, but we would never be able to see that or, or to prove that on the basis of the sources we have. And unfortunately, I don't think that will change with uh, future excavations because, you know, they are invisible in general. Excellent, thank you. Uh, the comparison to the servile wars is not something I had considered before, but of course that does make sense. Okay, and to try and tie this into the narrative structure of my podcast a little bit and bring us almost full circle back to our earlier discussion of dates, one of the secondary dates theorized for the rebellion against Xerxes in Babylon places it in 479 rather than uh, the range of 484, uh, and even suggests that this could explain the collapse of the Persian invasion force in Greece. Do you think that later date holds any water, or is it best to assign both of those rebellions to the 480s? Um, I think it's best to assign both to, to 484 BC, um, and there, there are several reasons why, uh, and one of them I already mentioned, so uh, prosopography, for example, is one way of tying the people mentioned in tablets that are dated to these rebellions to a specific time period, and that time period is uh, very closely connected to the last reigns of Darius, uh, the last years of Darius and the first years of Xerxes. Um, and one of the most important reasons is also that when we look at the archives um, in which we have these tablets dated to rebel kings, uh, then you can see that, you know, those archives, a lot of them ended in the second year of Xerxes. So we do, which means that we do not have tablets uh, dated to Xerxes from those archives um, to, you know, year three, year four, year 10, whatever. And of course, uh, I think especially in the case of Shamas Ariba, there is a possibility that you could date tablets um, from his rebellion to a later year in Xerxes' reign, but then you're forced to explain a gap between uh, his tablets, if you date them later, and the last tablets dated to Xerxes in the same archive. Whereas if you assume that they um, were closely related, then there is no gap at all. Um, and I think that is one of the reasons why it's unlikely that we should consider uh, a rebellion so closely connected to, to Xerxes' Greek campaign. All right. Uh, I'll just continue to speculate about why they never sent more troops to Greece then. <laughs> uh, and all right, just a couple of fun questions to wrap up at the end. 
what research would you personally like to pursue in the future uh, after you've completed your PhD project? Uh, yeah, that is also a very difficult question for me. Um, I think there are uh, several things that I'd like to consider. Um, all of them are somehow tied to the study of the Persian Empire, because I think that will always remain my um, one and only love, so to speak, in, in history. Um, but one of the things that I'm uh, really interested in are um, is the, the village of Ayn Manawir. So we have this uh, small village in Egypt in um, the Western desert, uh, which has been excavated from about the 90s onwards. And uh, those excavations have resulted in, um, in a rich corpus of demotic ostraca, uh, which is now one of the most important um, corpora for study of Persian Egypt. Um, and although they now have been published for the most part online, so they're easily accessible as well, we have about 460 of them covering a period of about a century, I think. Um, a lot still remains to be studied. Uh, so we have the text, but now it's up to historians to you know, really get the uh, relevant information from those texts and to study um, that society in Persian period Egypt. And I'm considering um, doing something with that once my dissertation on the rebellions is finished. But who knows, I might do something uh, entirely different as well and just dive right back into Babylonia or, uh, or Iran. Uh, the future will tell. Yes, and I'm sorry to put you on the spot about that. I know it's always a pressing question when people are asking, what will you do next? Um, and do you have any projects or media uh, accessible online that my audience would be interested in that you wanted to uh, promote or support? Um, well, that I want to promote. Um, we have a website for the Persian Babylonia project that might be interested to visit if anyone's interested in you know more about the Persian Empire and specifically uh, Babylonia and uh, Egypt. It's called PersiaBabylonia.org. So there you can find um, studies that me and my colleagues have published over the years, uh, events uh, that are happening, um, but also blogs about uh, different uh, parts of our activities and different parts of the Persian Empire. You can also find a POSIP up there. So if you're interested in the database and doing some of your own little research on uh, Babylonian populations during the Persian Empire. Uh, and other than that, um, well, I have, of course, my own articles, but I don't think I would promote them to a very general audience, um, unless you're extremely interested in the chronology of the first Egyptian rebellions, which you can find those once you, you know, Google my name or Egyptian revolt chronology should get you there uh, immediately. Right, uh, excellent. Um, and I will make sure for my audience's sake that there are links to the Persia Babylonia project in the description of this episode. As for our discussion, that was the last of the questions I had, uh, and I just want to thank you for uh, taking some time out of your day today to help me get my day started with a really interesting and fascinating discussion of Persian history. Thank you. It's uh, great that you asked me to be here, and it's uh, always lovely to answer questions um, about something that I'm passionate about, so no problem at all. It was a nice, uh, what was it, almost an hour. I will let you know when it's up and running. Uh, and as I said, thank you. No problem. Thank you. you have right. a nice day uh, ahead of you. <laughs> yes, thank you. Uh, enjoy All your right. evening. Thank you for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed our interview today. Links to Persia and Babylonia and Prosabab will be in the episode description if you want to check those resources out. Until next time, if you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com, where you'll find things like my bibliography and the Achaemenid family tree. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so financially, either with one-time payments on the website or at patreon.com slash historyofpersia, where you can get access to things like ad-free listening and monthly bonus episodes. The next one will be a review of 300 Rise of an Empire.
But the best way to support the podcast, as always, is to let other people know about the history of Persia. Share it on social media and tell everyone how cool this podcast is. At Facebook and Instagram, I am History of Persia Podcast, and on Twitter, it's just at History of Persia. Of course, you can always leave reviews on iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you listen on. I always appreciate feedback, and it's always exciting to hear what you all think. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.